Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Erica. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Yeah. Is this on? All right. Hi, I'm Erica Kamosa-Reader. Before I start, I have some goals for this evening. Okay, so one (laughs) is that I um, speak from a God space, God-aligned space. Two, that I'm authentic. Three, that I repeat the question, Susan. And four, that I don't swear. So I don't know if that's going to happen because I grew up in a household where swearing was a badge of honor. So we'll see. Um, thank you, Susan, for asking me to speak. And uh, to qualify, uh, just last month I celebrated 13 years of abstinence out of a relapse, and I'm maintaining about 100 pounds of weight loss. Huh. Yay! And I brought pictures or proof, um, so if you'd like to see them. <laughs> and the reason I say that, it's, it's actually a huge gift, because I've had medical doctors say, I can't believe you were over 250 pounds. And I'm like, well... I'll take off my clothes and you can see the absolute proof of it, but um, it, I can, you know, pass for thin. I, I can pass for thin. Now, the brain still has some issues with am I a normal, actually, I know that I'm a normal-sized person now, but some of the scarring of growing up obese, um, that's still there, so as far as the emotional scars. Let's see. Well, what it was like is that when I'm eating, unfortunately, that brief moment of you know, I want to eat everything that's not nailed down, is so brief. It's like such a millisecond that it's that false idea that my addict brain told me that that would fix me, that would make things better, that would be like a way to tide myself over until I figured out how to handle life. And it was so fleeting, but I chased it over and over and over again. And when I eat... First of all, I'm not nice. It's hard enough for me to be nice as it is. No, I'm a better after all, you know, a lot of recovery. But um, I'm not nice. I cry or I rage all the time. I can't hold down a job. I am a non-functioning compulsive overeater. So, um, and a hundred pounder. I think there's a special twist in there if you're a hundred pounder. Not that that were any different or better or worse, but. That idea that food will solve every problem and that mass quantities of food is the only way to do that. And um, my heaviest was when I was 19, 18, 19 years old. And as I said, growing up as a teenager that size, um, I went to, I think, 10 different schools in my school career. And it did not go well. I didn't make friends easily. And I was really scared of people my own age. Uh, And it's actually taken me many years to not feel like my peers were the people that could hurt me the most. So I avoided them at all costs to the point where I dropped out of high school. Um, I went to school so infrequently that I ended up in a continuation school because, so I was there with the, the people that were having babies and drug addicts, and then there was me who didn't go to school. So um, dropping out seemed like the best course of action. And um, I'm an only child. I was raised by a single mom. 
And my mom was a drug addict. She was a coke addict, a very, actually very well-functioning cocaine addict. And when she stopped using my life, this grand life where I went to this really expensive school and I had horses and my mom like took me places, it all stopped because the job with all the money stopped and she went to bed and she just stopped functioning. And... So I have actually have very fond memories of cocaine vials, and like I think, I actually think that life was really grand at that moment in those years. Um, and it's, I guess, you know what, the rest of it sucked. So I, I qualify. There you go. Um, anyway, when she went to bed, I was under the impression that I had to go to bed with her, and I had to take on whatever darkness she felt. I had to be responsible for anything adult-like in, in the household. I had to make sure things were clean, that the bills were paid. I took the dog. We had a great day, and I had to walk the dog up to the market to get groceries. My mom was seriously not functioning. And she was also my binge buddy. She was the person that oh, taught me, like, we would go to, at the time it was Mrs. Gooch's. It's not it's now Whole Foods. Um, we'd go to Mrs. Gooch's and buy all this food and all this healthy stuff and put it in the fridge and then let it rot because we'd drive through all these places getting our binge food. And that was like the cycle that continued on. And what happened at, when I was 19 is that my mom went to Overeaters Anonymous. And we, she had dabbled at o, in OA a few times, and I'd come and visit, and I'd have like little teen, like preteen accidents, and it was really cute. And, and then my binge buddy stopped eating with me, and I was like, oh my God, my, I can't, what am I going to do? And she would drive me through places, but she didn't eat, and it was no fun. I can imagine what an alcoholic would feel like when people don't want to drink with them if they're like that joy, um, gregarious type. But it's like, you've got to eat with me. And she was like, no, no, but I'll take you. And, and she was going to meetings. And uh, during that time, I always like to call it my physical bottom where I finally realized how big I was. I realized that, you know, because I lived by the neck up, I was like, well, I'm kind of overweight, but I didn't really think of myself as that big. And then something happened where I actually took it in and saw it. And it was like this existential crisis. It was like this whole moment of, oh my God, what am I, what have I done? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to those meetings with you, mom. And I went and I remember sitting there going, nothing's going to work. Nothing is going to work. <laughs> I'm just going to be this big for the rest of my life. And slowly I would listen in those meetings and things would start to shift and I would start to hear things and I would be like, well, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe something can be done. Maybe, maybe. And I, and I always like to remind myself and say that I came in as an agnostic. I was completely void of anything that was going to help me. And I love my mother, but my mom's the kind that when you say, I'm sick or I'm scared, she say, I'm sick or I'm more frightened. So there was never any comforting happening. It was just like, okay, so here I am in OA. I'm an agnostic and I'm scared to death and I have no support. So it was really a miracle when I started to see things turn around, and I started to learn about working the steps, and I had a sponsor, and I went to, I think I only went to two meetings a week um, in the same place in North Hollywood. It was Tuesday and Thursday, um, and I just started to get some recovery, and I started to have some weight loss, and I started to work towards having a normal-sized body, and I had that, like, not eating between meals and not eating sugar, and I, I don't remember all the specifics of it, but my life began to change, and something 
that has actually come up lately is that where I had my spiritual experience. And interestingly, it wasn't necessarily a spiritual experience of, I'm just going to stop eating from this day forward. It was, I didn't believe in God, and suddenly I did. And I was sitting in, in that meeting. I don't know if it was a Tuesday or a Thursday, but um, this woman had come from out of town to speak, and she was talking about God, her concept of a higher power, And she said that no matter what happened, whether it was in this life or the next, she was always with God and God was always taking care of her. And I just like had this wave come over me. It was so big and so powerful. And I just went into like almost hysterics, right on, right a notch below hysterics. And I just was so overwhelmed with that knowledge, that, that feeling that there is a God and I'm never alone. And that, for me, was worth the price of coming into Overeaters Anonymous right there because I did not expect that. That feeling has not, that the result of that feeling, I'm not walking, if I could walk around with that feeling, I would be really happy. <laughs> if I could walk around with that, ooh, it's all taken care of, step three would be, it would be done. Um, but I, from that day forward, I've had this belief in a higher power. Now, learning to rely upon a higher power, re- learning to not be, as it says in the big book, agnostic as to op- application with my higher power. Now, those are different things, and it's taken a long time for that to shift. Um, so I was in program for about five years, and towards the end, I fell out with my sponsor. I fell out with my two friends in OA. I had two, was unwilling to find more, was unwilling to go to other meetings, um, And looking back, I was really young. I was an isolated, unsocialized girl that had nothing but my mom. And I was really just not, I think, ready to really surrender to anything. Um, And I was in that spot where I was taking, I think my last year I took a candle and I wasn't sure if I qualified to take a candle. And I have to say, for me, that's a really uncomfortable place to be because I'm an all-in kind of a gal. I'm not a peripheral, let's just visit, let's just kind of do this thing. It's like, if I'm going to show up and put effort into something, I'm going to do it all the way. And so I ended up leaving, giving away the big, you know, F you. I was like, screw you guys, I don't want to see you again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work, this program doesn't work. And um, gosh, I think I was like 25. And I came back eight years later, and meanwhile, I dabbled in love addiction, I dabbled in dieting, I dabbled in... Gosh, I wish I could get my jaw wired shut. Susan, I never tried that, but uh, you're my hero for having done that. And um, I just dreamt of, like, all these things. And I I think weight-wise, I was, like, I don't know, a little over 200 pounds. And I came back because I was in such tremendous pain. And the pain of, of being in another program for the love addiction was so excruciating. For me, that is my abandonment stuff. That is, like, the core of the pain right there. And so the food was not taking care of it. And that was such a tremendous shock for me. I was like, you mean my everything, you know, bigger than mom, bigger than God, food wasn't making me feel better. And I thought, well, I'm not a drug user. I'm not a drinker, but what is it going to take? Do I need to be locked away so that I can get away from this feeling? Well, I can't get locked away, so I'll go to Overeaters Anonymous. (laughs) So I came back in 2002, and I became abstinent, and I was very clear I had to work the steps, and I thankfully uh, fell into a group of ladies that worked the APOR 
program, which is the Applied Principles of Alcoholic Recovery. And what it did for me was gave me a very um, rich, deep knowledge of the literature in AA and the literature mostly in AA, some of it in OA. Um, learning about um, ego reduction, Dr. Tybo or Tebo, whoever you want to, I don't know. Um, learning about, you know, how this program was formed and the importance of really working the steps and not just working them, but living them and applying them. And so I had three years where I got down to a decent size. Um, I got down to my norm, my initial goal weight in the first time around when I came in, I was 19. And what happened is, um, I just thought that what happened was, let's see, let's get real here, was that I would binge within my abstinence, technically, uh, every few months. I would have what my mom lovingly coined them as counter picnics, so I would just like spread stuff out on the counter and just start eating. <laughs> yeah, we were famous in my house for counter picnics. So, <sighs> And I called myself abstinent, and I thought well, when things got to be a problem that I would put them on my abstinence. And I would like make, and I ended up making this list of like, I think it was like 20, at least 20 foods that I made on, be put on my abstinence, thinking that somehow that would protect me from eating compulsively. Somehow, if I laminated the card with all the foods on it, I would not eat them because God forbid that I should look bad in front of my fellows. And, um, I also started to manage and control my weight. I was at, I think, a hundred and, 60 pounds at a certain point, and that wasn't good enough. I had a sponsor who was in relapse, but I didn't know it. So I was having discussions with her about eating bread again. For me, bread is my kryptonite. Bread and cereal, let's be specific. Bread and cereal, amongst other things. But um, if I think I can eat bread, I don't care if it's the most disgusting, dense, horrible, you could pound nails with it. I'm going to eat a whole loaf because I'm going to smear a bunch of stuff on it. And it's going to be fantastic. Like, that is what me and Brad are about. And so I had this conversation with a sponsor. And, you know, it's been three years. I haven't had bread. I'm doing really well. You know, just want to get down to, like, a better weight. But I can eat bread, right? Yes, you can. Let's try it. And uh, so not a good combination. My ego, bread, and then all the decisions that were made from there. I always thought of it as the perfect storm, but basically it was just my ego, because I cannot do this. I have, on my unaided will, as it talked about, talks about in the big book, lack of power is my dilemma. I have no way in the world that I can manage and control my food, my weight, what I think about food, how I feel about food. I am absolutely powerless. I didn't know that at the time, though, even though I was technically absent. So, um, so let's just say I... I had a really lovely relapse, and um, yeah, it was it was actually some people in the program saw it, and I stayed in the rooms, and I got up to 220 pounds in the room, and I remember somebody coming up to myself and this other fellow that were in relapse and said, "How does it feel to be a fallen star and over?" It was anonymous. I'll never forget that. And as crappy as that sounds to have heard said to me, it was like my ego really needed to be. It really needed to get off of itself. It needed to, like, really get it that this was some serious stuff. Boy, it's hard not to cuss sometimes. Um, so that relapse was excruciatingly painful. It was excruciatingly hard to come out of. It was um, moments of, 
I would say, what is it, moments sublime. I had these moments of like, I'm like a three-year-old and I'm going to go out and get every piece of whatever I couldn't eat for those three years and I'm going to shove them in my body and nobody's going to tell me any different. And then I'd wake up the next day and I'd be like, oh my God. I wish I were dead. I wish I could stop, but I don't want to. I wish I had X, Y, and Z. I wish, I wish, I wish. And, and I would get on my knees, and I would pray, and I would cry, and I would go to meetings. And for a while, I was really quiet. I just sat there and watched, and I was, in the, I was this, like, ball of fury. I was silent scorn. Just, here's Erica, silent scorn. I would just <laughs> come in, I'd sit down. And I had fellows that I came in the program with that were taking candles, and I was like, Oh, screw them. I hate them. And, and I had this friend, and I say, I do everything they do. And he goes, really, Erica? Are you doing everything you did before when you were abstinent? And I had to, yeah, you really got me. I was like, actually, no, I'm not doing everything I did before. Because part of me, my disease, was celebrating the fact that I could eat whatever I wanted and thought, oh, boy, this is it. I'm going to take advantage of this. Not knowing and not realizing that my disease could talk me into eating for the rest of my life. It could just tell me, oh, this is no big deal. You can eat like a normal person. You could have just a little bit. You know, you know, you'll just learn how to manage food, and it'll all be good. And, you know... And it doesn't tell me the stuff about, well, you're going to be so big, they're going to have to make a special coffin for you. You're going to lose your eyesight. You're going to lose your limbs. You're going to lose the ability to go out and interact with others. You're going to lose the ability to have any connection to a higher power. You're going to lose the ability to have any kind of happy, joyous, and free because all you think about is eating this food that is killing you. Mm -hmm. But it's covered in, oh, it won't hurt you, not this time, just not this time, it's okay. It's okay, honey. You need it. Ugh. So I had those days where I really wanted to be abstinent, and I really wanted to come out of it. And I had friends. I always like to say this just as a reminder to me. You know, I, ha I remember being out in the parking lot at the Darby office in Reseda. Lovely Reseda. If any of you ever got to visit the, the San Fernando Valley Intergroup in Reseda back in the day, it was a happening place to be. <laughs> And we were out in the parking lot, and, and my friend was going, she was really having a hard time, and she was upset about her life. And I just looked at her, like, really just looked at her, frankly, and I said, but you're abstinent. You're abstinent. What I wouldn't give to be in your shoes right now and be abstinent, because I can't even get one day. I can't even get one day. And that was a huge moment for me, one of many, where I figured out, boy, life isn't really much fun without being abstinent. Like that feeling of putting my head on the pillow at night, having eaten cleanly for the day, having given it over to a power greater than myself, and waking up the next morning not feeling like I want to die is pretty spectacular. Why can't I get it back? And so I continued with the crying and the praying and the writing and beseeching God, God, please give me the willingness to be willing to be willing to let go of this food. Meanwhile, I asked everybody I could think of to be my sponsor. I asked one woman three times. In fact, if she ever sees me again, she'll probably run because I was like really very pushy. Please, please sponsor me. You don't understand. And, and God bless her. She introduced me to, um, I think it was one of her sponsees who was just starting to sponsor. And interestingly, I had never met that person and I'm kind of a snob. I would be like, well, I need to vet her. I need to find out, like, <laughs> does she have, like, a lineage? Does she have, like, the things that I want? Is she married to the perfect man? And does she have it all? But I was so desperate. I was like, 
Okay, give me her number. Oh, please, God. Please. <laughs> For real. I didn't care. She turned out to be um, a different, you know, she was into women. I'm into men. She was into a totally different lifestyle than me. She was this, that, and the other, and I didn't care because I just wanted that relief. I wanted to get abstinent again. So I called her and I started working with her, and she was not, she was not soft and fuzzy, thank God. And that's something, I'm in two other programs, and those two other programs, well, one of them's more gentle, but for me, I don't think Overeaters Anonymous can afford to be gentle because it's, I can't have somebody rubbing my arm going, it's okay that you're eating, I love you, just, it's okay, honey. I need somebody to say, what are you going to do today to save your life because you're going to die from this disease? That's what I need. And that's what I got. And I finally, for the first time, was willing to follow a food plan. I was willing to take direction. I was willing to commit my food in the morning and report any changes. I was willing to do whatever she asked me to do. And some days, especially when it came to relationships, I would hear stuff from her like, well, if you're not willing to do this, I'm, I'm afraid for your recovery. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Um, but it was such an, a tremendous gift because... Um, I learned in those weeks, I learned that I had to really be humbled and really be in a place of that gift of desperation in order to recover. There were no, I did not have the option. And I remember uh, calling this lady, I think her, she's got, I think, 33 years now. And I remember calling her, and she's one of those that doesn't eat no matter what. And I said, how do you not eat no matter what? And she goes, I just don't. And I, I basically, like, you know, was fake in a fake way nice to her, and I got off the phone, and then I think I threw the phone, because I was in the car, I threw the cell phone across the car, like, how do you not eat no matter what? Like, is there some special ingredient? What, what the F? I was so pissed, I was truly so pissed, and today I'm somebody that doesn't eat no matter what. Like, I, and it, what it took was me to be in this space of being open to what does it take to not eat no matter what? And what does it take for me to not eat no matter what is to give it to a power, power greater than myself. And I also know I'm not one of those that if I get to the point where I want to eat, that I can turn back. I am not one of those that can make 10 calls, and I'm not one of those that can lay there in my bed and read a book and get my mind off of it. I have to be spiritually fit enough every day so that I don't get to that point. And also, I'm also somebody that I weigh and measure my food and I don't add an extra this or that. And the reason I don't add an extra this or that, because one extra this or that is Erica controlling her food. And I know for me that I am a breath away from going back to where I was. I am under no illusion or delusion or mixed up thinking that I cannot go back there within a second, within a second. I don't have that mindset of like, oh, I got 13 years of recovery. Oh, I'm just the best and I'm never going to eat again. No. It's a reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my, my, my spiritual condition one day at a time. And I always try to share these two um, little snippets in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous um, that really kind of hone in what my program's about for today. And one's on the top of page 264 where it says, I decided that I must place this program above everything else, even my family, because if I did not maintain my sobriety, I would lose my family anyway. If I did not maintain my sobriety, I would not have a job. If I did not maintain my sobriety, I would have no friends left. 
I had few enough at that time. And then the other one, which really is a biggie for me, it's on the bottom of page uh, 450 to the top of 451. Then I realized that I had to separate my sobriety from everything else that was going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety. The tides of life flow endlessly for better or worse, both good and bad. And I cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent on these ups and downs of living. Sobriety must have a life of its own. So what that means for me is if I had a bad day, if somebody's mean to me or, God forbid, I'm mean to others, which can happen, um, my food doesn't change. And I'm one of those sober eaters, too, although I'm not with the group of men. Like, I don't hang out with them. They don't let me. But um, (laughs) I have sobriety with food. And I have, um, which to me, and there is cussing involved, but I won't say it, but I do not F with my food. Like, that is is my sobriety with food. And I will talk about my abstinence. Uh, Actually, I call them the three pillars of my recovery. My abstinence is um, I eat three meals and three, up to three snacks a day because I'm hypoglycemic, nothing in between. So if I lick a spoon, if I eat something on the, off of the counter, if I have a quick bite or whatever of something, I've broken my abstinence. It's like an alcoholic. If I've taken a drink, I'm no longer sober. If I've taken a bite between meals, I'm no longer abstinent. Then I have my food plan, which it used to be a commercial food plan, which taught me how much food my body actually needs. I used to think that I could get away with the biggest potato, the biggest apple, the biggest piece of meat, and somehow I would be a normal body weight. And I learned that when you're counting things like calories, or at the time it was points, that you're not going to become 100 and whatever pounds if you're eating you know, stuff the size of a baseball because, like, oh, my God, I found these apples in the store, and they're, like, this big, and I'm getting away with these, you know, I just had to learn that. Um, And then really, really important is my um, alcoholic foods. Like, I knew coming out of my second relapse that I knew exactly what foods triggered the phenomenon of craving, that once I ingested them, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, it was off. It was, I, and then... And then all foods were, like, I could binge on broccoli at that point. But I had to have that phenomenon of craving triggered in order for that to happen. And for me, the top foods on my alcoholic food list are refined, you know, recreational sugar and white and wheat flour. I've learned that I used to say all flour, but there's certain flours that are okay to me and they're not sexy and they don't trigger me and I have them once in a while and it's like, it's okay. I'm not, you know, it's, it's not off to the races. Um, and then there's a whole host of other foods. I remember having a discussion with that sponsor at the time about popcorn, and it was kind of like a sometimes it's a problem for me and sometimes it's not. And she goes, well, God, what did she say exactly? It was kind of like it's be- better to be safe than sorry. She's like, well, if it's a problem, then how about you just not have it for today? And I go, okay. <laughs> I'm like, sure. Thank you for making that decision for me. Um, and I haven't had popcorn since, and I can give a crap. Like, I really don't care about popcorn. But I don't have to have that monkey mind where I go, should I have it? Sometimes it's a problem, but it's not always a problem. And I don't know. Maybe today I could have it for lunch, or maybe I could have it for a snack, or maybe I could have it for dinner. And, oh, my God, I don't know. Like, <laughs> So I don't have to do that today. Um, so these last 13 years, my program has been ugh, about dealing with all of the reasons why I eat or why I ate. It's all about 
relationships and being afraid and being disconnected from God. And boy, I tell you, like they say, why do you, you don't want to know why you eat? Put the foot to the fork down. And what I learned in program is that I don't have to be afraid of those feelings because I'm given this whole toolkit and ways that I can function in the world. Thank you. Wow. Um, that I can function in the world and not completely like lose my crap over the fact that I'm having feelings. So things like meditation and prayer, journaling, making outreach calls, um, going to lots of meetings. For years, I went to usually five meetings a week, if not more. I looked at it like I should be in an eating disorder unit, so I'm going to take as, advantage of as many Overeaters Anonymous meetings as I can. And... Um, and then I also learned that the tools are not what's going to change me. They're just there to help me along the way, but it's the steps that are going to give me that change, going to give me that opening up to God, opening up to spirit. What would you have me do, God? Who would you have me be? And I do call my higher power God. Um, as I said earlier, you know, learning to rely on a power greater than myself and not being agnostic as to application, which means that I could believe in God all day long, but if I'm not going to rely upon God for my life, especially for food, then why do I believe? Is it just for that moment before I die that I feel like I have some kind of support? Well, I need a little bit more than that. And I'm a big believer um, in writing on the steps every day, in really... Um, really being in the steps on a daily, continual basis. And something for me about putting an actual pen or a pencil to paper and writing on the steps and my experience and what those steps mean to me and being guided by a sponsor has changed the way I look at things, has changed the way I experience things, has changed the way that I relate to myself and others. Now, having said that, I am now in another program to the point where I had to deep dive into Al-Anon because I love Overeaters Anonymous, but I am so screwed up with relationships that I just feared for people. I had to get in myself in another program. So, um, you know, I had to be in that space. Of, and it's really humbling to be that new in another program and to be like, yeah, I got all this time in another program and nobody cares. They're like, well, that's nice for you, but this is another program. And so it's been very humbling to be like, okay, so I get it 100%. I mean 100% that I am powerless over food, that to my core I cannot manage and control my food. But there's all the other stuff. I want to control everybody at work. I'm a manager. I am a high... I'm like right under the boss at this company, and I think that I'm the only one that knows what's going on. I control the money, and how dare you people not listen to me. I'm the one that, you know, I'm just like, you guys need to bow down to my plan and do things my way. And that has caused me so much pain and stress, I cannot tell you. So it's things like that. It's like, oh, I want to be able to walk into the workplace and not want to take prisoners and not want to be like, how dare you, and not want to like, be reliving my childhood because, by the way, my boss is my mom, but not my mom. Like, she's, of the seven things about my mom that make me effing crazy, she's five of them. <laughs> and so there's no mistake that I'm, I'm learning lessons of, like, how to walk through life and be a child of God. And I know I'm running out of time. I want to leave time for questions. But um, I don't want to forget about talking about my higher power and... You know, talking about my 11th step, I've gone through the steps many times in OA. And I think it was, oh, maybe, hmm, 
six years ago, I was on my 11th step again, and my sponsor and I at the time um, talked about deepening my 11th step and deepening my prayer and connection to God. And so I decided to start taking classes at my church. Now, I had been around that teaching in my church since I was 14 years old, and I'd never taken a single class. And then I took a class, and my whole life just went... It's like somebody took a shaker and was like, okay, here you go. And it was so huge for me that I took more classes and more classes and was like, I really like this. And I, and I want a deeper co- connection to God. And I want to love God more. And I want to rely on God more. And I want to be happier in the world. And, um, and so needless to say, long story short, I'm now... In, in school to be a minister. So, like, who saw that coming? The agnostic that's, like, sitting there going, I don't know about it. There's no God, and I don't want to know about God. Um, and I'm not saying you got to do, like, become a minister to have an 11th step going on, but <laughs> by any means. But I say it as an example of one of the many multitude, the many miracles that I have experienced in my life. If you said five years ago, hey, you're going to become a minister, I would have been like, I don't think so. I want to, like, be a famous singer, or I want to, like, <laughs> travel the world with my husband. I don't want to, no, no. Um, but that's what I'm called to do, to the point where when I was trying to decide whether to go to school for it or not, I couldn't sleep. I had nights where I couldn't sleep. I was so excited like that from the inside out. And I'm one of those for years that was like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I here? What's the purpose? I don't know. And I knew. Like, I know. I know. It just happened. Um, and so that reliance upon God and still being gentle with myself of like, hey, you don't get step three all the time as far as running your life goes. You are still in fear and you still think that if you control that you're going to be safe. And the reality is, is that when you let go, beautiful things happen and you are so beautifully taken care of and God does for you that bigger things than you can even imagine. And so that is my work until the day I stop breathing on this plane is to like, hey, how can I trust God more? How can I be of service? For me, being of service is a big deal because I'm a self-centered addict. Like, I, my first thought is how can I is not how can I help others. My first thought is every man for himself, and I'm going to save me first, and I'm going to take all your food while I'm at it. Like that's my first thought. Um, so it's just um, being open to what my higher power has in plan has planned for me, and meanwhile, food is in its proper perspective. It is. I'm not necessarily one of those. that's like, oh, food is just here to nourish me. No. I think food is fantastic. I have days where I'm like, I'm so bored with my damn life, I cannot wait for dinner. I just love the food that I make. I cook just about everything I make, and I just, it's all eaten in the portions, the calorie count, and I love it. Like, I'm still a compulsive overeater, I still, but I want to die abstinently. There was um, a woman in our program, I'll finish with this, named Sandy. Love Sandy. And she passed away, but she died abstinently. And what a... For me, that's like, what a way to go, that I didn't have to die in that fog of this disease that is just, to me, it's self-abuse. It is just such a separation from who I am and who my higher power is, and that when I'm shoving that food in my mouth, nothing else matters. And so I want to have that breath in me of, I am connected to life, I am connected to God, I am connected to myself, and that I want to pass to the next incarnation being clear and and not clouded by this disease. So anyway, that's it. Thanks for letting me share. 
All right, I haven't sworn, so now it's time for questions, and I'm going to repeat the question, hopefully. So, who would like to ask a question? Don't be shy, guys. I stopped early, I think. Go ahead. Uh, what is your morning routine? Um, it's shifted. I, I get up several days a week. Oh, what is my morning routine like? <laughs> See? Progress, not perfection. Um, my morning routine has changed because I now get up at either 4 a.m. during the week or 5. So I have a basic, I have uh, three daily readers I read in, um, and then the big book every day. I usually read on acceptance every morning because God help those people at work if I don't read that. I usually get on my knees and say either the third step prayer or the seventh step prayer. People say the seventh step prayer more in meetings, which is the greatest. Um, I love that prayer. And then, what else do I do? Um, what it used to be was that I would journal, I would do my step work, I would do my daily readers, I would do my prayers, and I would meditate, and it would take me three hours, and I wouldn't, then I would leave the house. But I don't have that luxury when I'm getting up at four in the morning, and I'm not getting up at three thirty in the morning. So what I do is I do that part in the morning, and before I go to bed at night, I write on my step, I write my um, in my journal, which is uh, consists of a God letter, where I turn everything over, ask God to help me with whatever I'm dealing with in that day. I ask God for the power and courage to carry out his will for me. And then I also write a little letter to my inner child and my, um, I call her the little Erica and young Erica. Young Erica is the 250-pound Erica because those parts of me still feel like they're unworthy and that they're not okay. And so I give them little words of encouragement. Non-program action, but it, it's helpful. And, um, yeah, so that is my morning routine, but now separated out. So I hope that helps. Anybody else? Oh, I'm done. <laughs> Sorry.